0: Welcome to the Self-Renewal Podcast. This is your host, Sam Sager. I'm excited to share this discussion with Rob Hardy, known for his work, Ungated Creative, where he writes about marketing and building beautiful internet businesses. Rob is not one to share marketing tactics or best practices. Instead, he helps people uncover their intuition, shift from rigidity to fluidity, and to build something that is both authentic and full of life. What I love most about Rob is how open and vulnerable he is about his own journey. In this conversation, he shares many ways he's evolving in real time. So let's jump in. Rob, welcome. How are
1: you this morning? Good, man. Feeling alive. Busted out some kettlebell swings. Yeah. Like right before I I got on this. Just like, I oh, so I you're needed, feeling good. Yeah.
0: Got the With juices flowing. Form. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am excited for this conversation. It feels fitting to have you join. It's a long time coming, and I thought I would start just sharing a bit about how we got connected. I, um, a few months ago, was just getting back into the world of Twitter, Internet. I had been kind of on a hiatus for probably five years and had just been feeling like it's just a place where people are going to consume, where people are audience building and growth hacking, and it just didn't feel very alive to me. But something was calling me to just play around there, and so I showed up, and I was stumbling through the woods and just felt completely lost and confused, and I stumbled upon Your World Ungated Creative, and it was like this beacon of light where it just was speaking to me in, in a language that resonated really deeply around how you could show up in a way from the inside out. Um, one of the things that just immediately captivated me was your idea around Oasis building and this just permission to stop worrying about everybody else and just create something for, for yourself. And, um, that just has kind of unlocked so much for me and has connected me with so many amazing people. So I just wanted to start by thanking you.
1: Yeah, dude, it's my pleasure. And I, I, I guess I, like the thing I'm curious about, cause like I'm now I'm turning this interview back around on you, um, is like how how on earth did you find me initially, or like were you already in sort of like the teapot, so to speak? Like, did you stumble your way into that first, and then found me, or like? Yeah,
0: I wish I had a good answer. I wh- what comes up is I remember when I first joined Twitter, and this was back in like February, so very just this year. At the beginning, I, I just connected with like five or six amazing people who had tons of shared interests. And I was just having a blast with like a very small number of people. And then all of a sudden the algorithm took over and like I logged Mm -hmm. in one day and it was just this toxic, like bizarre place. I was like, wait, how how did I get here? Uh, And so I think there was a bit of like trying to claw my way back from that of just um, finding people that I really resonated with and seeing who they were connected with. I I think my guess would be I had had a conversation around February with Paul Millard um, and had read a bunch of his stuff and he he very much was you know from him I took this idea of create space for serendipity don't rush to try to define the path and and I think from there I got connected to you and so the way I would describe it is he created this sense of space and then I still felt very lost and you gave me a little bit more of a how to show up and get comfortable with being yourself in this environment
1: hell yeah that's super cool I feel like I feel like Paul is like a beacon of light who like creates these Mm -hmm. permission structures for people to just like show up and yeah, it's stepping off the default path of Twitter, of work, of creating. Like, I don't know. I just listened to his book for the first time. Like I should have read it when it first came out, but I got distracted. But when the audio book dropped a few weeks ago, it was, um, it was just like a two day binge for me. And I've realized that he and I are basically saying the exact same things. Just, In slightly different ways. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I, I feel like they're a beautiful one, two punch. I think he gives you the jab to disrupt your, your traditional path. But at least for me, I was left just with this sense of possibility, but no clarity on, on what to do. And I think it's not, you're not sharing tactics or anything, but I think that you're, you're pointing people in a direction of how they can engage that just feels really authentic and I think a lot of people who are struggling with starting to share are worried so much about what other people think that the frame in which you create for people. So I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear, you know, imagine, you know, I'm someone who's coming to you and asking you, you know, I, am not currently sharing anything. I'm just kind of consuming on Twitter. What advice or what do you tell people in that point to, to start them on this journey? Mm.
1: I honestly don't even know at this point, like it. it, Which it sounds really stupid, but I think I think part of like my my like mental discombobulation right now is that I'm I I feel kind of disconnected from from people. I don't know, like beginners. Like that's kind of like pejorative, but like it really feels like my sweet spot is people who have been around the internet game for a while and they've done things the traditional way they've done all the best practices they've done like they've, you know, maybe they've built a successful business, but it feels like a prison and they're like, why does this suck so much? Um, but it's really like those intermediate to advanced folks that I feel like I can best speak to. Cause that's, te- that, that's where I'm at. Right. Like it's easier to speak to people who are like a step behind you on your journey than it is to like, look back to like five years ago. Um, but honestly, the advice is probably the same, ironically enough. Um, it's aliveness. It's to, feel, it's to feel into what is inducing your curiosity, what's sparking that actual embodied sense of aliveness, like where, you're, like where you actually feel truly engaged and present with ideas or whatever you're thinking about or whatever you're creating. And then it's about putting it out into the world. And like, I, like, I feel like there's, there's a bunch of like supplemental advice that comes around that because we, we, I don't know, like most of us don't feel like we have that permission to do that. We think it won't work. We think it'll be like, we think we'll push people away or that we'll be judged. Like there's, there's a lot of emotional insecurity that comes from that. But like, that is the advice is to is to start putting out what feels alive to you and to keep doing it and to start connecting with people who connect with your work and like it's it's literally just this process of doing doing things that are alive and finding the others and then like iterating your way towards something that feels good and like that's it's so simple it sounds trite it sounds kind of i don't know like it, this is still the thing that I'm I'm grappling with in all of this is I used to have such meticulous, complex advice that was like very prescriptive and it would like get people to where they would want to go. But increasingly, it just comes down to like trusting yourself that your, your aliveness, if followed, your intuition, if followed, will always reveal the next step, will always reveal the most meaningful step, the thing that will bring the most resonance and joy and connection to your life. Whereas when we try to like follow these prepackaged answers, follow these perfect formulas or checklists or whatever. Very often it leads in the exact opposite direction of joy, meaning connection. Um, so that's the thing: is just follow, follow the aliveness, man.
0: Yeah, I love that. I feel like that ties to this broader theme that we've chatted a bit about of of non doing. And I, I know neither one of us views views themselves as an expert on it in any way, but it seems like you're saying that so many people are telling us exactly how to do it. We have to do it this way Mm. and and you have to follow this playbook. And you're in many ways telling people as much, not what to do as what to do. And so I'm just curious if how you would think about, you know, non-doing in your work or um, just if you can. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Like I'm, I feel like I'm starting to embody the idea of non-doing and that most of what I do now feels easy and flowing and intuitive for lack of a better way of putting it. Like, like I, it's really easy just to contrast like how I used to show up in the world, like putting a ton of, a ton of pressure on myself, really like forcing myself to do these complex meticulous, like build building funnels and like building out my email and like, I don't know, like all the, all the things that I thought I should do to build a business. Um, it feels, yeah, it still, it still blows my mind how, how easy and fun everything I'm doing now is, how little force is being applied, and how it seems to be working better than when I was, than when I was doing all of the right things, so to speak. Um, so it feels like I've sort of slipped into, a, a, into sort of like a non-doing frame. And I don't, I don't exactly know how I got here. To be honest, like, it's like, um, I also forgot what the question you asked was. I think I went off in a different direction, but
0: no, I was just curious about how that idea of non-doing is showing up in your work and Mm. how you're thinking about it these days.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's showing up in more, more than the work too. like, you know, showing up with, I don't know, in the work we've done together around fitness and nutrition, um, specifically around, around this, this idea of like, I don't know, like for me, it's like flowing into movement and not, not creating like these, these rigid expectations for myself, which then cause pressure and then make it feel like this big, uh, like this big obligation is like, like, again, right before the call, it was just like, I'm, I don't know. I feel like I want to get my bud, like my body moving in my blood pumping. And so I bust out 20 kettlebell swings with the 71 pounder and I just did it. Like there was no, there's no anything other than just doing it. Like it was just like a natural extension of how I wanted to spend my morning driven purely by the impulse to do it. Um, And increasingly there's more of that in my life. Like less of my life is spent in my head, like constructing the perfect rationalizations for the things I do. It's more just me flowing through life, doing what feels intuitively correct in any given moment.
0: Yeah, that sounds way more fun.
1: Yeah, it's dope. 1010, would recommend.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's it's cool how I I think that's such an underrated part of how all these things. I mean, we talk about the ripple of how, you know, you do one thing and it ripples into something else. I, I think that's so true about your work too. Just I, I know I, I'd come to you and I talked to you about something around marketing. And, you know, I'm I'm basically begging you to give me some very concrete marketing advice, <laughs> and you're continually pointing back towards this kind of trust of yourself, following your intuition. And one, it just is remarkable that it actually works because you don't believe it will until it does. But also the way that like, bleeds out into the rest of your life where all of a sudden mm. you just trust yourself more a little bit in, in other areas or you, you've you strengthened that muscle to follow your curiosity. Like I always used to struggle with reading things that I like would start reading and realize I didn't care about but feel this pressure <laughs> to keep going. And now I'm just like, wait, <laughs> there's no aliveness here whatsoever. I'm just going to put this book over here and move on. Mm. Uh, so it's just interesting how that that habit seems to spread.
1: Yeah. I've been going through that that same arc with reading for the last month is like I've started probably 10 books and gotten like 10 to 15% of the way through them and been like uh and then I just start shaming myself. It's like, "Bro, you can't even finish a book. Come on." <laughs> like but yeah, maybe, maybe that's the next frontier for me is just like joyfully putting away books. Hmm.
0: Yeah, it's, so do you, how do you think about your work as it relates to the practice of building beautiful internet businesses or marketing versus some of these bigger picture personal transformations?
1: I think they're the same thing like i yeah i think they're the the it's all it's all one and the same like i i've used the the trojan horse metaphor or analogy a bunch um ungated is ostensibly a website for learning how to do marketing and creativity on the internet and 1000 true fans and this sort of like solo indie entrepreneurship thing but it's a Trojan horse for like these deeper and I don't I don't have the exact right words for like what this transformation is I think like the big the big conceptual frame that I've been applying to everything is helping people move from rigidity to fluidity um, mm. and and sort of like unlearning a lot of the a lot of the dumb bullshit that keeps us stuck whether it's like mental patterns or emotional patterns or or what have you. Um, but a lot of it comes from being more, more fluid in the world. Right. And it's, it's a very non-doing frame fluidity. Um, you know, the water flows around any impediment that's in front of it. Like, whereas if you're rigid, you just keep running into whatever it is. Um, so I, I think a lot of it comes back to self-renewal. Like, like that's, that's what the Trojan horse is, is, um, Helping people become self renewing organisms self renewing yeah entities i don't know what the right word is, but like there's something there because um, i think I think most of the ways we're we're stuck and that we're frustrated come from you know come from baggage that we've picked up through our life that no longer serves us, strategies that might have served us as a kid or as a teenager or in a previous job that are that are no longer adaptive in the world that is in this internet world in in our relationships and our relationship to self. Um, so it's, it really is about being self-renewing and adaptive and learning to strip away the things that are no longer serving you so that you can engage with yourself, engage with others, engage with the world um, in a, yeah, in a more fluid way where you're constantly evolving and adapting, becoming who you need to be um, to meet, yeah, to meet all these different challenges that we face.
0: You're speaking my language. I uh, one of the favorite parts of just connecting with so many amazing people on the internet is seeing how people are applying these same ideas in different domains. And it's it's just so useful to get out of our own bubbles and be like, wait, we're we're doing these similar things but from a different angle. And I think there's like that's where there's so much power. When you describe it, I mean it just sounds so great. Like you know, the rigidity, we all know what that feels like fluidity I and mean, who, who wouldn't want that. I'm curious, what kind of tension resistance barriers do you find are most common to bubble up as people go on that journey?
1: I, I don't know. There's a lot of them, man. And I've experienced like, this is a, this is maybe like the big, the big like caveat or like, like asterisk that I should throw behind all of this is that I have like, is like a two year journey. Like all of us sort of started with me in the pandemic and like lockdowns, like that was sort of the inciting incident in like storytelling speak. Um, But the, the journey from there to here has been so messy, so full of ups and downs and false starts and taking two steps forward and one step back and then like three steps forward and then five steps back. Like it's a whole fucking thing that doesn't feel linear or easy or binary in any way. It's not like I just woke up one day and was like, I'm going to choose to move from rigidity to fluidity now. And then, you know, like <laughs> snap my finger and like tap my toes and all of a sudden it happens. Like um, it's been uh, so th- and, and like the thing like that's the thing, right? Is like to get to the question you asked. Like there's there's so many layers of sort of like fear and insecurity and not enoughness that are so like woven into my psyche. And I think a lot of people's psyches, like they're just ingrained habits of mind, uh, ingrained habits of our emotional lives that, that, yeah, it, like even if you have an intellectual understanding of wanting to be a more fluid, regenerative being and, and be in a more non-doing state, like there's, there's these parts of yourself or I don't know if, I don't know if parts is like the right framing, but I think, I think so much of the work here is, is the deeper emotional work, um, is like to use like the Sasha Chapin term, it's deep okayness. It's cause so like it, like the, maybe like the, the headline version of this is the more you love and trust yourself, the more all of this, this fluidity and non-doing and self regeneration stuff just naturally happens but the more you're at war with yourself, the more you loathe parts of yourself, the, the more you really like lean into your insecure thoughts and trust them and whatever else, like the, the more rigid we become like that. That feels like the, the easiest way to say it is like when we're in a state of fear and not enoughness, rigidity is like our, our natural coping mechanism. Um, I don't know, does that make sense? Like,
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And I think both what you're describing there and what I've heard you say at other times, it, it helped me realize that the best practices, the desire to look to someone else to tell us how to market our businesses or grow them how much of that came from just wanting to externalize authority or you know say oh well just tell me what to do because I can't possibly have the right answer myself or you know if I listen to you then I don't have the responsibility of um, it, it being my decision and so it's been fascinating to see how much like there's that inclination to want to do that and how scary and powerful and all these things are to yeah. to lean the other direction um and I think that that applies in a lot of other areas and we've talked about it with fitness and you know wanting to look to something like 75 hard where it's like I'll just do what they tell me and everything
1: will be okay yeah and then there's just forever and a very angry Andy Frasilla in my head making me feel not enough because I'm not living up to his standards or his guidelines or whatever and it's yeah yeah it's interesting like the the thing that comes to mind with all of this is this idea of leaps of faith um it's like internal, like re internalizing your authority. I don't know if that's a thing, but like, like it feels scary as fuck and uncertain to start like trusting your intuition after, I don't know, for some of us, it's like decades of externalizing our authority onto other people and systems and ideas. And like, it takes, it takes a lot to trust yourself after decades, of not trusting yourself. Um, and if, it will always feel scary. It will always feel uncertain. Um, so I don't know exactly where I'm going with this other than like, like there's a, there's a bridge to cross there that is like really, really like it's a, I don't know, gaping chasm. I'm imagining like the, the Indiana Jones bridge and um, what is it? Temple of, it's not temple of doom. I think it's, it's what, whichever one with Sean Connery, but where there's like this vast chasm and you can't actually see the, um, the walkway between this chasm, like you just have to like trust that if you take a step out onto it, that it'll be there. Like it's something will support you.
0: Yeah. Leaps of faith feels very, very resonant around what, what we're talking about. I'm going to get philosophical for a second. So just bear, bear Mm -hmm. with me. Um, I think a lot about in terms of like society and how, you know, the, conditions of society either support renewal or support rigidity and, and all of that. And when you were talking about the decades of, of not trusting yourself, you know, brought me back to thinking uh, growing up, you know, childhood, teenage years, how much there was these kind of structures in society that felt like they were telling you, you know, look to someone else, look to school, look to others. How, how did you experience that? And you know, do you do you have any thoughts on kind of from more of a societal level how the structures are either supporting or hindering the ability to trust ourselves? Hmm. That's
1: an intriguing question. I warned I, you, I was getting philosophical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to like trace this through my own life. Cause I think I think my life has been a little a little bit atypical, maybe a lot atypical. I don't really know, but like I Like up until um, seventh grade, like I was in public schools and that was that was just like how it was. And then I got kicked out of middle school and got sort of like sent off on uh, like I went to an Episcopalian boarding school in Mississippi for a while. Um, And that I don't know, we might come back to that later. But like that's where I started playing guitar. And that might have been like one of the first sort of like pivotal regenerative moments or places or contexts in my life. Um, and there was definitely like that, like just in terms of, yeah, in terms of sort of like rigid, like rigid expectations placed upon you, like it was a, I don't know, like it was a place where we, we, everybody wore uniforms every day. There was a place where we all like had a, like, there was a sort of like a rigid system of discipline of like, like there were all sorts of ways that you could be docked. For points in the dorm if you didn't make your bed like in like academic life if your grades were slipping like there's like this whole rigid system of rules and laws and whatever that just sort of like confined you and like and whatever not to mention it like it was a it was a religious school so we went to church a couple times a week and like there was this whole aspect of everything um so that stuck with me but then then I ended up at a at like that's that school went bankrupt um, in my eighth grade year, I probably would have stayed there all the way through high school otherwise. Um, but then I ended up at this like really weird, vaguely just like, I don't know, individualistic. I don't know if that's the right, but it's this tiny little boarding school in Steamboat Springs, Colorado that, um, was almost the exact opposite there was more about individual flourishing. Like they sent us out into the wilderness a few times a, a year to go like camping and backpacking and hiking and to really like experience oneness with nature and the responsibility. I don't know. This is, none of this is really relevant to the question you asked, but I feel like, I, I, I don't know, looking back, I'm realizing how much of, or I don't know. It feels like a lot of the values that I sort of, I sort of, adhere to now, or that I, that I find really important to my life were planted in that, in that school.
0: Yeah. Well, I think what you're getting at, which definitely I, I find in my life is just the importance of the environment that we're in. And, mm-hmm. and especially as you know, we're growing up, um, kind of the way in which the environment, you know, the physical, social, all of it, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I have, I have a young daughter, she's four or five months now. And I've, just, you know, looking at her and you, you see the environment and it's very kind of micro s- scale right now, but it, yeah, it just makes me so kind of a conscious of wanting to cultivate an environment that's supportive of her exploring these ideas and, and developing more of that fluidity at a younger age than I certainly did. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I don't know what that looks like. I, I would love to chat with anybody if, if anybody, you know, has, oh. has studied that or...
1: yeah. The first, the first person that comes to mind is um, Luli Luli Tannett because um, mm. she was raised without school, like she never went to any kind of school, and her parents sort of adhered to this um, and, and pioneered this philosophy called taking children seriously, that is essentially like the total anti-authoritarian approach to raising children, and it's it's allowing, and I think it's similar to unschooling and a lot of the other things that are are kind of increasingly in vogue for obvious reasons um but that might be an interesting conversation too um yeah i don't know but i, I increasingly yeah. that that's what I, I find myself leaning to as somebody who like wants to have kids sometime in the next few years is just like i'm i'm increasingly sure that the environment like the default path environment to use some paul language um is not conducive to like raising flourishing humans who can adapt and be self-renewing and like like be part of an evolving world on its own terms rather than being like locked into like old systems and patterns of rigid thinking that are really just like a byproduct of the industrial revolution and this like really mechanical worldview that no longer that no longer tracks the world that we actually live in as it evolves and changes rapidly because of technology. Like um so yeah, I don't know exactly where I'm going with that, but your boy is distrustful of school. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, well, I,
0: I it, it brings up for me. I mean, I was a bit like this. I was a very rambunctious kid, had a lot of energy, super curious. But then you you get in a classroom setting, and it's just so stifling, and it's not there to bring out the curiosity of every individual. I thankfully, from a kind of, I was competitive enough that I I was able to channel that and just say like, I'm going to find a way, but. I had, I would look like, think of peers where, you know, there was, they, they just weren't in an environment that was conducive for them. And if you'd put them in a totally different environment, I bet they would have thrived. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll use a, a gardening metaphor. It's like, <laughs> it's like planting a, planting a plant in the wrong place. Like if a plant needs full sun, you put it in shade or if a plant can't handle the sun and you um you put it in baking sun, it's not going to thrive. And so it's just about creating those conditions.
1: That's, that's it. And I, I think like, that's the thing about like about sort of the school system is the standardization of it is like trying to fit everybody through this like very narrow or like very narrow rigid way of thinking. And like, I, th- I think there's something to be said for a liberal arts education, something that is very diverse, giving you a taste of, of all there is to sort of understand so that you can think critically and be cross disciplinary and all that. Like that's, that's there for me. Like that's, or that's alive for me. Um, but I just like I don't know. I come back to this idea that we're like we all have gifts of one sort or another. We all have I don't know. I don't know if you've read um, shit. What is it? Stephen Cope is that his name? This is the book about like finding your dharma, your vocation? Your yeah, um, great
0: work of your life. I love that book.
1: Work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it just there's like there's no direct path between. Standardized education and dharma or vocation, and in fact, standardized education seems to actually point more people in, in completely opposite directions from what would actually not only like help them flourish and enjoy their lives, but be most beneficial and contributing to their to the world around them in some way, right? Like that's so. That, I don't know. Like, there's something here around around giving people the freedom to follow their curiosity so that they can discover those things that they can uniquely do in the world. Um, And I just, yeah, it just feels like so many of the systems that were, that were sort of churned through actively discourage that. Because so much, again, it's like, it's like this man is machine metaphor that came from the industrial revolution is like, it's trying to churn out cogs in a machine rather than fully realized individuals who can contribute to this larger living organism. Um, yeah. I don't know, man.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think you're totally on. I, that's why the, the values we live by seem so important because if, if all we value is, you know, consumption and GDP and and all these things, then we're gonna channel our children towards towards those goals. And, you know, I it's just it's why I find it so important for, you know, the people in these little pockets to be asking ourselves and chatting about, you know, what it what is it that we value? How do we bring that into our daily lives? And, you know, it feels daunting and overwhelming, but I guess we I guess we just, just continue to play with it. I'm I'm curious, you you mentioned a little while ago about you, music and that, that, that might've been an early point in your life. Um, is that, is that kind of a time where you first encountered this notion of self-renewal or do you have any others that, that come to mind when you were, when you were younger?
1: I think I, so I don't think I really encountered like the concept of self-renewal proper until, um, probably two years ago is I, I saw it from, from Kyle Bo on Twitter. Like he mentioned that self-renewal by John Gardner was, was one of his favorite books. And I was like, I like Kyle, I'm going to go get this book. Um, then read it, loved it. Um, kind of, it just sort of like sat in the back of my mind for two years. And then you somehow stumbled into my life as self-renewal guy, um, <laughs> self-renewal man, the superhero. Um, and I read it again like three months ago or or whatever at this point. And it, uh, yeah, like the, the level of resonance was just fucking through the roof. And it's a big part of, of what I'm doing now with Ungated Life. And that's a whole other conversation. But so I like, it feels like I only recently have self-renewal as a filter or as like a, a lens to view certain parts of my life. So I can like look back at, at my middle school days and like me starting to play guitar and finding a, uh, like a new thing to, cause I, I don't know, I was an angry, uh, like a really, really angry teenager. My stepdad died when I was, I think like 12, like 11 or 12 years old. And like, I got angry at my mom and angry at the world and yada, yada, yada. Um, and I was on a, like I was on a really dark path there for a while because of like, because I was so angry because I was like, like I was, got expelled from school and it was into things like shoplifting. And like, there's a whole, like there's a whole bunch of like really bad behaviors that had me on a, or not even bad behaviors, like just, but I was, I was on a path that was like leading to a, a pretty dysfunctional life. And then guitar came along and music came along and it became a, an outlet for all of this negative energy. And it, kind of consumed me. I was that kid who would like stay in his room for like seven hours every day to just like practice random crap on the guitar. Um, And looking back it, that felt like a major one of those like self-renewal turning points is I was able to pivot in a certain way and, and, legitimately like renew my sense of self and become a slightly different person and start heading in new directions. Um, but I never would have conceptualized it that way at the time, at the time it was just like, guitar is cool. Chicks, chicks dig guys who play guitar. So therefore I'm going to get really good at it. Um, and there was also, and there was also an element of, um, like my, my stepdad who passed away, like he, like his and my thing was, um, like rocking the fuck out to classic rock, um, like we would like whenever he and I would like drive up our our driveway, um, we would just like crank the stereo in his car, and um, to annoy my mom naturally, um, and to announce our arrival. But it was always it was always Zeppelin and Leonard Skinner and Eric Clapton and like the whole like that whole sort of like bevy of like late sixties early seventies classic rock like guitar God style music. And like, that was the kind of stuff that I was really into playing in those early years back in, um, like back in Mississippi. So it kind of felt like a way to reconnect with that and to like fill maybe a, a, like an emotional hole in my life. And yeah, like that was, that was maybe the first big self renewal turning point.
0: How long did that identity and activity focus around music continue in your life? hmm
1: yeah this is a good arc probably so all through high school it was like my thing i was guitar guy um if i was on twitter at the time i would have been like the guitar guy (laughs) trademark oh
0: you would have you would have Um, you would have cleaned up the followers there
1: oh my god dude i have like so many like like i don't know it's one of those things like there's are so many things that I could have become internet famous for had I just like started a YouTube channel or like started a blog. Like I was into notion like long before it became like a buzzy productive tool and I was so nerdy about it. And like, had I just like started a blog or a YouTube channel about how I was using notion, I would probably be a millionaire right now <laughs> like, just on account of being. Free. Yes. Um, yes, but you'd be stuck, you'd be stuck in a notion size
0: cage and the rest yes. of us wouldn't have ungated creative. Um, so we're i'm 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 very grateful myself selfishly that the notion youtube channel didn't take off
1: yeah that's true um so but music yeah yeah um so yeah it was my thing all the way through all the way through high school i i thought i was going to go to college for a combination of um basically like music production like a lot of the technical shit that happens on the back end in terms of like recording and editing and mixing and engineering and whatever and um like jazz per like jazz composition and performance cuz i i just love me some jazz but the thing about jazz <laughs> is that it is like a deeply technical intellectual um yeah I don't know exactly how, like, you have to be, like, really deep in the weeds of music theory, of being able to read music, of being able to improvise, of having this, like, vast repertoire of jazz standards and forms and whatever in the back of your head. And it is, like, as somebody who is entirely self-taught on guitar, like, I never learned to read music. I had, like, a vague conception of theory, but, like, nowhere near enough to even understand what the fuck is happening in any kind of jazz arrangement. Um, and yeah, and then there's other things like I've always had like a kind of wonky sense of like timing and rhythm, which is not good for being a jazz musician. You have to be able to like really sort of like keep up in all sorts of weird time signatures and shit. Like it's a whole, it's a whole thing. So like I spent part of my junior year and early senior year, like trying to, to close that gap basically. Like I started taking lessons and like learning theory and learning to read music but it wasn't alive to me anymore. Um, Mm. and I kinda, I kinda pulled back and was like, fuck it. I don't think I want to do what I have to do to get into the jazz conservatory. Um, so I kinda like, that was maybe another pivot where that like, that's what sent me into film. Like I was just looking, I got, I got accepted into the university of Denver. Um, and it was, I don't know, it was the only college I applied to and the only one I got accepted at and it was whatever. But I, I started looking at their other majors just out of curiosity of like, what else could fit me here? And I was like, film, that seems interesting. I like movies. And then that was sort of like the, the pivot point that sent me on like 10 years of filmmaking being like a crucial part of my life. But all the while, like guitar was still a thing that was lurking in the background. And like, I I don't know, like, like it feels like, there were so many rigid expectations for how I should approach guitar. A lot of which came from me realizing that I was never quite good enough or like, um, I was never like up to speed enough to play jazz, which is like one of the musics that are like, it's the music that I love most and aspire to play the most, or at least I used to. So there is this rigidity that I carried forward and like a sense that I just wasn't good enough. So I couldn't really like enjoy my playing anymore. Um, there's like this, this deep sense of inadequacy of like, yes, I can do some stuff like, I don't know, like I, I can shred the guitar pretty, like pretty well, all things considered. Like I am, I am not bad at this thing, but there's a story in my mind about how good I should be. And it made it, it basically made it impossible for me to enjoy for years. Um, and only in like the last three or four months or so as I've been you know, doing a lot of this sort of emotional work and like letting go of old parts of myself, have I been able to like rediscover guitar as a thing that one can just like pick up and enjoy and like noodle a little bit and be like, Oh, that's cool. Um, and like not needing to be good, not needing it to be anything other than what it is, which is just a like a really nice little creative outlet. So it's interesting how I've come full circle. Like it feels like I'm, just now coming back to guitar after a really yeah after just like years and years and years of it being kind of a heavy obligation and a and a reminder of me not living up to my potential in some capacity
0: I love it we will link to the the Twitter videos that you posted (laughs) to show that you that you do in fact shred there there is video proof it's uh it is true I'm curious when you when you kind of pivoted to film did you become film guy in your
1: mind yeah i'd say so um yeah and there were and there were different flavors of it through the years there's like indie like there's like indie film guy there was like cinematography guy like then there was uh like writes about film guy but it's, it's a bit of a leading question, I'll admit, because
0: <laughs> I, I, I'm personally super curious about identity. And in my own life, I was a baseball player we talked about through through college. And when I lost that identity, I was just so lost. And and I, I've realized now, looking back, that my 20s were largely chasing a replacement identity, yeah. trying different things on and, and doing that. So I was just curious. I know film is one of those, or sorry, music is one of those things that you're pursuing it like a sport. You're pursuing mastery. You're you're really taking on. So I was curious it, how identity played a role in in your mm-hmm. journey.
1: Ooh, that's another whopper of a question, Sam. As, especially as like somebody who thinks a lot about identity. Although it's interesting, like my my sort of entry point into identity was through the marketing world, and like thinking about how identity is a is sort of a useful lens to think about to think about like how to, how to build a creative business, but that's a whole other conversation. <sighs> yeah, I don't, it's, it's interesting. Like clearly, clearly there was friction from like the, I don't know, like these transition points of like moving from music to film. And clearly they're like, clearly there, like for me, like, the musician identity or like the aspirational identity or the, that I had around music and guitar was something that sort of like stayed with me, even though it wasn't an active point of my life and caused a lot of sort of like, yeah, like friction and suffering and like self doubt and all of that. And so I don't know, like I think about like, there's a, there's like a Paul, a Paul Graham essay somewhere about like keeping your identity light or keeping it lean. Um, And I'm realizing that that's kind of core to how I'm living now is like, I, I'm really, I'm hyper aware of my identity attachments or like when I, when I feel myself getting attached to some label that I could apply to myself. Um, And I think, I think that awareness comes back to like, oh no, I have to be careful here because the more attached I get to a label or a view of myself or a self-conception, the less self-renewing I become because like identity is one of those things that can very quickly become a prison right it can become like once you once you've solidified like this is who I am this is this is what I care about this is like this yeah like this self-conception is is me like it just leads to rigidity um so I don't I don't know exactly where I'm going with this but like it's a, it's another one of those things that I never really like considered identity through my twenties. Um, never really like considered like how my identity might be changing or like how I might be in these in these liminal phases between between identities. Um, but yeah, like increasingly, increasingly, I'm I'm a wary. I'm I'm more wary of our need to identify with things and our need to attach ourselves to labels and. And, institutions and, and, and ideologies increasingly, like a lot of that type of stuff feels. Yeah. Like a double-edged sword. Like it, it can create like deep belonging and a, and like a solidified sense of self. But I look at a lot of the, a lot of the, like the systemic, I don't know. I'm thinking about politics in particular and people who find their identities in culture war tribes and, I see that as as some of the like the most deeply harmful shit imaginable to humanity's well being and to our individual well being. Um, so I I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, other than like like yeah, I think it's the double edged sword thing. Like, yeah, okay.
0: yeah, I think that's what the one two punch of you and Paul did for me was I didn't realize before how much I was trying to build an identity around professional pursuits. And in the past, you'd start a business or start a new role. And if you pour yourself so much into it from an identity perspective, it it becomes limiting. And I think that that's the warning that I hear you saying to so many people of like, hey, if you want, like be wary of a niche, if that niche is becoming your identity, be wary of putting yourself in a box. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if that, if you think that relates.
1: Yeah. I, oh, it, it totally does, and I have this this concept or this binary that I've been thinking about is like this idea of being a contortionist or an expansionist, um, and I think I think like so like so much of the online business marketing advice like is is geared towards putting yourself in a specific box, creating a very rigid conception and like a very narrow conception of like who you are, what you do, what your expe- or what your expertise is, who you serve yada 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 and broadcasting that and only that and building your audience around only that, making increasing amounts of your your digital life in service to that one thing. Um, and again like there's there's a, there's plenty of like business like I don't know like that's the thing it, it can be effective mm-hmm. like it for like building a business quickly like that is a that is a, a far more surefire way to go than a lot of the more expansive follow your aliveness shit that I talk about these days. Um, But like the reason I say the word contortionist is that for the vast majority of people who do that, they feel like they're putting themselves in a tiny little box and they have to, they have to squeeze all of these different parts of them that don't neatly fit into said box into it. They have to contort themselves day in and day out and how they show up in the world because of a rigid idea that if they don't, they will not succeed. Um, The, the, I don't know. And like the idea of it being an an expansionist for me is basically like this idea of letting it all out is embracing the idea that you are an expanding, evolving, ever changing being and, and just rolling with that, like being honest about that, being like, here's who I am right now here's what I care about. Here's the problems I'm interested in solving. Here's yada, yada, yada. And you can still be like hyper niche in this capacity. Like, I don't know, like right now I'm, I'm like going down like the self-renewal rabbit hole with you and like, like doing that on ungated life. And that is like, it's a really like, it's very niche. Um, but so I, and, and like it with ungated like the original ungated is like there's there's like 1000 true fans is like a is like a hyper niche entry point into this broader market that I'm sort of like building everything around because it feels alive and important but in two or three years or five years or 10 years probably not so much um, and I'm trying to be open about that that like I am like at this point like I am intentionally trying to evolve. I'm intentionally trying to go to where the aliveness is, to where the, to where my curiosity is going, to where there's connection and meaning and purpose and, and where my emotional needs are getting met. Cause that to me feels like what it means to live a, like a, a joyous fluid life. Right.
0: Curious to hear with all this conversation around self-renewal if there's any particular areas in your life right now, I, other than everywhere, yeah. that <laughs> that self renewal is particularly alive, or you're feeling, you know, a very active season of renewal,
1: I'm mad at you for not allowing me to say everywhere. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. I think, hmm, I'm trying to find the one that's like most salient. But then I start like looking at them and it's like, Ooh, that's the one. And then I look at something else and that's the one. And it just comes back to everywhere. But I guess, I guess food and fitness is probably, is, is probably the biggest one just because it's been the biggest monkey on my back through so much of my life. It's been the place where my patterns of rigidity have, have sabotaged the shit out of me in so many different ways. And had so many like negative ripple effects through my life, right? Is like, is like, I've, I've gone through these patterns for years of essentially like emotional overeating and binging where I get, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that like once that happens, like I have a, like I might, I might have a couple of good weeks of, of like eating well and working out and like feeling good and high energy. But then I'd have a shit day. Something would get me anxious. Something would get me insecure, whatever it is. And like, I would turn to food and it would start this wild downward spiral of one eating like way too much, excuse me, and spending way too much time in front of the TV, which only sort of like, like that's another one of those things is like habitually there's this voice in the back of my head that whenever I'm watching TV, it's like, you know, what would go really well with this TV is just like some shitty food. And like, so like those two things go hand in hand. Um, Inevitably I would eat too much. I would binge. I would feel like shit just like physically or physiologically to the point where I would be sluggish and not want to work out that state of like low energy and sluggishness would only perpetuate itself. And I'd go in front of the TV and eat more, and like entire days or weeks or sometimes even months would get buried beneath these these patterns. And at, at times I've called it depression, like these funks where I just seem seemingly incapable of pulling myself out because it's affecting my work, my relationships, my self-image. my And there's like a literal physical heaviness that has come from these patterns of rigidity around food. Um, and it feels... Right now, like a lot of that is just melting away. Um, like, th- thanks in part to the work that you and I have been doing, thanks to, thanks to some of the like the Joe Hudson style emotional work that is leading me to realize that a lot of these patterns of rigidity stem from me being unwilling to just like feel my feelings. Is like if an insecurity pops up, or if I'm feeling particularly lonely or something the old pattern, like the avoidant pattern would be to be like, Oh fuck that. I have to run away and I have to go like drown this out with food or I have to distract myself with television or I have to scroll Twitter and get like some dopamine hits or like whatever the thing is. When in fact the real move, like the ninja gangster move is just to like feel the scary thing is to be like, yes, I am in fact lonely right now. And to feel what that's, that's like, Somatically, and to really embrace it and to love it and to let it pass through you. Um, because very often on the other side of just like feeling whatever it is, again, whether it's like a sense of helplessness or anxiety or fear or anger or some some kind of emotion that we would normally repress, like on the other side of just like feeling it and accepting it and allowing it is like freedom and clarity and a sense that like, oh, everything is actually okay now. (laughs) Like, um, and I'm, I guess I'm realizing how much of my life um, was built around emotional avoidance was built around trying to uh, like, never feel my anxiety, my, my various senses of loneliness or not enoughness or like, however, like however it might be conceptualized. Um, And now I, now there's, Yeah. Like, so I don't know, like that feels, that feels like the pattern breaker. The thing that's allowing me to move from rigidity to fluidity, especially as it relates to food is just realizing how many of those, those old addictive patterns around food were emotional avoidance in one form or another. Um, and just by, just by bringing awareness to that, and having this sense that, yes, I can just feel these negative things and still be okay. Like, it won't destroy me. Um, yeah, a lot of those those patterns around, around food, around exercise and rigidity and, like, needing things to be perfect. Like, a lot of those patterns are just sort of dissolving of their own, like, on their own, basically, without me having to attack them directly. Like, that's the thing that I keep coming back to from this Joe Hudson work is, like, like if you chain, there's probably a, a better metaphor here somewhere, but like it's like, so, like it's the ripple thing, right? Is like changing something within naturally will expand out to other areas of your life without without you having to really force it or try to control it in any kind of way. Um, so I don't know. I think that's the biggest area right now is food and food and fitness. It's feeling more intuitive, more easy, more joyful than it ever has and it's i'm still not entirely trusting of it but it's it's good like i'm feeling good
0: that's super powerful man thank you for sharing that that uh yeah it seems like non-doing is bubbling up again in another domain Uh, Mm -hmm. um it's it's back i'm curious the shift from rigidity to fluidity specifically with fitness what does that look like to you hmm
1: I think it looks a lot more just like experimenting and like running and like not even like like because I I think there's a way that you could exp- like I think a, like a lot of people right now are really into like um what's his name like Andrew Andrew Huberman or Huberman or whatever the fuck his name is like deeply deeply nerdy science guy um and it's like great content like interesting like really interesting conceptually but like when I say science like being or like being an experimenter in life like it's almost exactly the opposite of that. Like I'm, I'm not trying to rigidly quantify everything and do, do things just because the science says so or whatever. It's more, it's more coming from this place of like pure intuition. Like what, what feels like an alive thing to do with my body this week? Um, what, what actually makes me feel good versus like in my body as like an embodied being versus all of these concepts that I have in my head about what should make me feel good or like what should like, so I, I don't know exactly what I'm, what I'm getting at other than like, it's almost entirely intuitive now. Um, I'm basically spending like a week or two trying things out that I think are, that I think are exciting that I'm, that I'm, yeah, that make me feel alive. And I'm, but I'm not putting a ton of pressure on myself. There's no, there's no sense of like, you have to do this in order to get to where you want to go. Like it's, it's sort of driven by just like a, a curiosity in a sense, like a, a desire to see how good I can feel versus, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it's the whole like externalizing authority versus internalizing it. Right. Like that's, that's what it is right now is like, all of this is coming from internal authority and being very bottom up and iterative and just trying shit out, not to, not to get data that'll be useful to anybody else, but to see what actually makes me feel how I want to feel in my life, um, and in my body. So I don't know if that was a good answer, but like, it's, yeah, that's, that's the thing, man. It's, it's, it's truly inside-out, bottom-up. like
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the best answer I could, could possibly hear. I mean, it warms my heart because I think when we first connected, there was this sense of I have to kind of look to the experts to tell me what to exercise, or, you know, Huberman says, so I have to do it. And obviously there's so much we can get from those people. You know, we can take ideas yeah. to experiment with, but, you know, what what better than trying it on ourselves and seeing what it actually likes? So it's uh, it yeah. warms my heart to hear that, and it it's funny because it's like, I feel like that's the thing you do for everybody else with marketing, with, with all of this, (laughs) where you're, you're turning around, you're telling people, Hey, when you're trying to make that decision with your business or marketing, see how it feels. Like I, I remember you tweeted or shared this notion of like the best marketing tip is like, actually see how you feel when you do the thing. Um, and that, that's like this meta skill that I guess we're all cultivating in different areas and trying to apply everywhere, but it, it's Mm. super powerful. And I think it certainly informs most of the work that I do with, with fitness. I'm curious, you just related to that. You mentioned um, that one of the things that came to you with the pattern was how certain types of marketing would make you feel when you were on the receiving end of them, Mm. just in the, in the kind of totally kind of adjacent, but related I'm curious if you could share more about how you now experience certain types of marketing, certain types of, you know, business approaches that, that aren't kind of in the, the vein of everything we're talking about. Mm.
1: They make me angry, Sam. The, so, and angry is not even the right word. I think it's more of a, it's more of a, like a sadness, but.
0: You're not mad, you're just disappointed I, in them.
1: Yeah, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I want to just like ground all of the marketers and send them to their room so they can think about what they did um a lot of it comes back to this idea of like internalizing and externalizing authority and the thing that is now just clear as day for me about is like how much marketing and it, it's not just marketing but we'll use this context for now like how much of marketing? is geared around controlling other people and trying to make their decisions for them and not trusting them to be able to make the right decision for themselves. So therefore you, you pull them down a funnel and you pull all of their little emotional levers and you create artificial senses of scarcity and urgency and whatever else to get them to do this thing that you want them to do on your own timeline. It's trying to rob them of as much authority as possible. And increasingly as I become a person who's like, yo dog, I am the fucking authority of my life. And I encounter this like, and that's the thing, right? I, I just framed it in a really sort of aggressive way. And it's usually not that aggressive unless you're sort of in like the depths of like hardcore direct response marketing internet where people are writing like these really long sales letters and aggressive sales funnels and campaigns and things like that. Um, but even, even the friendliest marketing today Almost all of it starts from that that same set of assumptions without people realizing it, right? Like nobody sets out to be like, yo, I'm going to control people's decisions. But like it's an assumption that's just like baked into the foundation of how 99% of the advice, the strategy, the tactics, whatever you're doing in the marketing world, baked into that assumption is that you know what's best for other people. You have made the product that is going to solve people's problems and they just need to realize it and trust you instead of trusting themselves. So the more deeply okay I am, the more trusting I am of myself, the more, the more I am my own authority and fucking excited about it, the more I I can't encounter what I would call coercive marketing or, or traditional marketing without it leaving like this, this, really really negative taste in my mouth and the flip side of that is also true right when i come across like we talk like michael ashcroft or or somebody who who is like so i I don't know like for me like non-coercive marketing is about like ceding authority to people it's like telling the truth about who you as a creator as a business owner as a as a inventor like whatever your thing is As an intellectual, it's being 100% truthful about who you are, what you've created, what you do, why you do it, how your thing works, who it's for, what people can expect from purchasing or interacting with it or whatever. It's like, even even if we're insecure about what the truth is, like that is our, as non-coercive marketers, that is what we do. We tell the truth. And then we fully trust other people to be able to encounter that truth and decide for themselves whether whether it's the right thing for them, right? It's it's not trying to force people to make decisions that you want them to make, but trusting that they can be their own authority and make the right decisions for themselves because they are individuals, they have different values, they have different whatever. Um, and increasingly when I encounter somebody who's playing the game like that, whether they conceptualize it like I do or not, it feels so nourishing. It makes me trust them to an insane degree. It makes me want to do business with them. It makes me want to recommend them to my friends and create like these ripples of word of mouth. Um, and increasingly, and like, and increasingly, I just will not do any of those things with, with people who are marketing in these older ways. And my, like my hope is with ungated is like, that I can create that kind of like I don't know, red pill or white pill or some, like some sort of pill. Like, like I, and maybe I call it, like, I call it pattern pilling people, like seeing the pattern. Um, And that's, it's kind of a different thing, but increasingly I think like, that's, that's one of like the, the biggest levers for me being of service to the world is helping people actually see this and feel what it's like to be respected, like deeply, truly respected by a marketer or a creator, somebody who is, who is fully trusting you and who is fully allowing you to be your own authority. Because that's a, that's an embodied experience. Like it feels really, really, really good to be trusted. And once you've felt that and how nourishing it is, like any marketer that comes along and that is not trusting of you, that is saying like, I know what's best for you already. And starts pulling your emotional levers like you're going to have more distaste for that than you ever had before you were before you were pilled, so to speak. Um, so my my big sort of like systemic thing is like the more people I can like non coercive marketing pill. The more the more the incentives of the Internet start to change, because as it becomes sort of like a cultural norm and more people are are really put off by by traditional marketing, the more traditional marketing is going to fall out of vogue because, because it's going to be less and less and less effective because like, and so that's the thing. It's like, I see the ripples that this, this Mm -hmm. can create and how by giving people a different somatic and embodied experience of like what marketing can feel like and how it can empower them and make them feel more, more trusted and trustworthy themselves. The more, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, this is the thing. It's just like the, the ripples um, and I think, I think those ripples can be like far, it, it goes far beyond just, just like people in their relationships with creators or businesses. Like I, I've, I think I've talked about this a little bit, but like the goal of non-coercive is to regenerate trust in the world, in a world where trust is like a, a disappearing like rarity in a lot of cases. Um, I don't know, man,
0: that was kind yeah, of a I love that. No, I, I, I think I, I knew asking it it was going to get you fired up. So maybe I was just, uh, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to pull a little of that passion in here. But I <laughs> it felt super related to the fitness stuff. And I think the reason for that is because for me, the same, the same pattern you're describing with marketing is right there, front and center with fitness. Mm-hmm. Most people are telling people, you you can't be trusted. You have to force yourself to exercise. You don't know what you want. Let me tell you what to do. And it's, it's all about you know, trying to, you create a bunch of shoulds and everybody should feel like they have to do this and there's no kind of authority and no belief in self. And so I think, you know, everything that I'm trying to do is just hand that power back to people and say, there is an approach to exercise that can come from within you that you will enjoy that will all the same stuff. So Mm -hmm. I get super excited hearing you talk about that because I think that there's ways that that approach can bounce around these different areas and the more that all of us learn to listen to ourselves, the the better equipped we are to navigate. Like after you shared this with me, I had a purchase I made, and I didn't realize at the time. But as soon as I made it, I just felt gross.
1: Mm.
0: And looking back, it was because I was kind of led down a path, and it, it wasn't the right thing for me. And and so I immediately had that visceral experience. So I think you're you're really onto something there. Um, I know we're coming up on on time, so just one final. Final terrain to cover. One of the things that's come up for me as we were chatting today is just a sense of timeline. And if you look at like a year, it feels like there's a lot of sacrifice or, or fear to go with your approach, right? Like in a yeah. year, just niching down or, or doing these best practices, you'll probably come out a little bit ahead of where where you'll go if you just kind of follow this more intuitive exploratory approach. But then if you zoom out 10 years, it's almost like a no-brainer <laughs> where it's like what would somebody who niches down that far be doing in ten years? It it it's it's inevitable they'll be in some kind of box or so they'll have to completely rebuild. So I'm just curious if you even think on a 10 year horizon, if there's any big, huge vision, any any type of thing you can share with us that um, of, of where all of this may be maybe headed or or where yeah. where things
1: are going. Hmm. I've never been asked that before. Okay. So I have I think it's it's like extraordinarily useful to think on like these 10-year time horizons or 5 years or or whatever just because it breaks us out of that like I think we're all wired for like that short-term survival instinct is what's going to get me the most is as quick as possible which is one of those things that leads us towards like being hyper niche and needing easy answers and best practices and yada 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 so we almost have to zoom out and to trust that the long game is where we want to go or like there's that there is a longer game that is kind of unintuitive or counterintuitive that will in fact be far more conducive to us leading a, a life of joy and connection and meaning. Like th- those are all the things like I come back to. Um, for me, I have a sense like, so I have a direction that I'm headed. Um, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily believe in like, here's my five-year vision or my 10-year vision anymore. Like it feels really, it feels like way too close to goal setting where it's like, this is exactly where I'm going to be in a year. And like, these are the steps I'm going to take to get there. It's like the more concrete the place that you think you're trying to go is the more, I think the more suffering you create for yourself, basically like, like especially with, with domains like this, where, where there just like are no easy intuitive paths through the world, like where we are all sort of like making our own path. Like, like I think it makes sense if you're trying to get a promotion, right. And you're in this sort of like rigid hierarchical structure, or maybe you're trying to get a certain type of job. But as I like, as a sort of a self-employed, constantly evolving person, like I have no fucking clue where I'm going to be in five years or 10 years. But I have a direction that I'm moving in my life that is broadly towards solving problems that are interesting, like interesting to me. Like one of, one of them is like, how do we make 1000 true fans ubiquitous? How can we build a more beautiful internet that is, that is fueled by people who are choosing to break the pattern? And we didn't talk about what the pattern is, but like, I'm, I'm interested in what it, what it looks like when people are their own authority at scale when people are freed up to follow their curiosity and their aliveness and to find the others and to break out of these patterns of rigidity, like, like I, cause I believe the internet, like even though it's kind of a dumpster fire in many ways right now, and it's actually like, like creating, creating an ecosystem that, that worsens our mental and emotional health. Um, I, I don't think that it has to be that way. Like I, I think, I think the internet can be like an amazing tool to help humanity flourish. But a lot of that like requires us to break some of these patterns in ourself first and to like build communities and to like help other peoples and to like model new types of behaviors that create new types of incentives and whatever. Um, so like, that's one thing is like, how do we build a more beautiful internet? Another is like, how do we regenerate trust? How do we, how do we become self-renewing beings How do we navigate a world that is changing really fast and become who we need to be to solve some of like the really wicked, messy problems that are facing like America or the world or humanity or whatever? Um, Like all of these are things that are front and center for me in my consciousness that guide how I do my work and where I'm going. But, but it's also fluid how I'm getting there. Like, I don't, I don't know exactly like that's, so that's the thing, right? Is like, I'm, I'm trusting that I'm moving in a direction that is, is based on solving these problems or at least coming up with some compelling answers to these problems and being really connected to other people who are doing it. But more than anything else, it's, it's like, my hope is that I'll be living as presently and joyously and connectedly in 10 years as I increasingly am right now. Um, so it's, yeah, it's like no longer kicking the can down the road to like some future version of you where everything is going to be like all hunky-dory and good. But it's realizing like this very basic truth that like the here and now is all there is. And if we don't enjoy it, then we're shooting ourselves in the foot. <laughs> um. So I don't know. Like that's the thing. I trust that if I keep enjoying myself and working on these problems in ways that are alive to me, in five to 10 years, I will have made significant fucking progress and made a real impact there, but I have no idea what that looks like. And it yeah. will probably, it will probably evolve and and go places that I could never think my way into right now. Um, For sure. So, so I'm not even bothering to think my way into them right now. <laughs> Maybe I'm just being, lazy. yeah.
0: The two things that stick out to me there is just the, the way in which you frame it all around questions, which just feel like such a better way to go on an adventure and let things evolve as they should and and end up with an answer but not think you have the answer and then try to you know rigidly pursue it and then the other thing about that 10 year vision of just you know the way that you want to be present and alive i think the thing i take from your work overall most of all is the conviction the story that embodying that is actually pivotal and crucial to solving the problems, to approaching them. Like, if we, mm-hmm. we, we can't wait to be like that, because that is what's needed for us to go through these journeys and to, to do it. And yeah. so um, I think mm-hmm. this is a, probably a really good wrapping point because I, uh, I think your vision is, is beautiful and I'm excited to watch it unfold. Mm-hmm. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rob. Thanks for listening. You can check out Rob's work at ungated.media. And please subscribe to stay tuned for more episodes. We have some really exciting conversations coming on the theme of non-doing and some great personal stories of renewal.